welcome to episode 56 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. First off, thanks for hanging with the show even as we've had a rockier release schedule. I went on reporting trips in July and August and things just kind of got away from me. And I won't lie, it's going to be a tough next couple of months for the podcast as I continue to travel a lot. Since this is a passion project and I make no money off the podcast, my day job as a correspondent for Reuters has to come first. It's possible that I'll miss a release date before things come back to normal in November. But the show must go on, and there are at least a few new episodes on the way in coming weeks. Now, on to our episode. This is the time where I climb up on my soapbox to talk about business and financial journalism. These journalists probably don't get the respect they deserve much of the time when compared to politics or general news journalists. But business journalism is frankly such a huge part of the industry overall and deserves to be highlighted. Especially if you're a young journalist, business and financial journalism can be your way into the industry. It was my way in, at least. I studied abroad in China for my junior year of college in 2007-2008, and when I came back, the economy was falling apart. It was unbelievable how quickly the world economy could just tank in the one year I was gone. As a journalist, though, it was exciting. I took a business journalism course in my final year of university, one of only three journalism classes I've ever taken in my life, and really thought, this is where it's at. This is my way in. Forget trying to be the next Woodward or Bernstein, I thought. Journalists should be out there as watchdogs, spotting the next financial crisis before it happens. I started as a business reporter at the newspaper, The Sun News in Myrtle Beach, and then was a writer and editor at an economics magazine in China. Okay, maybe I haven't stuck with business reporting, but then, as now, there are just more opportunities in this area because people are willing to pay money for it in a way they often will not for general news. Yes, the media industry hasn't been doing so well in recent decades, but business journalism still provides a wider opening for prospective reporters to find work. So that brings us to our guest for this episode, who will underscore the importance of financial journalism and the opportunities it can provide. Jamie McGeever is a financial markets columnist for Reuters. His work has taken him around the world, starting in Brazil, but especially in his early career, he was jumping positions just about every year. He'll explain that seemingly arcane areas of the economic system involve unimaginable sums of money changing hands every day. And when things go haywire, like when he was reporting on the 2008 financial crisis, it disrupts all of our lives and is a hugely important story that presents a tremendous opportunity to journalists covering it. Okay, I'll climb back down off my soapbox now. Jamie is also a friend and colleague who I worked with in Brasilia for more than two years. We also have some fun in this episode discussing things like which world leaders are most charming. I learned a couple of things I never knew about him too, like why he was so interested in Spain in the first place. And true to form, he manages to somehow work his favorite football club, Celtic, into the conversation at least twice. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jamie McGeever, a financial markets columnist for Reuters. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jamie. Thanks very much for having me, Jake. It's a pleasure. And to warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene... Tell us where you are geographically and the physical space around you, and let us know a little bit about what your past week of work has been like. Well, I'm speaking to you from Orlando, uh, Florida, uh, East Orlando to be more precise. I started my new role as markets columnist for Reuters based in the US 
about uh, well a few weeks ago in August, having transferred from Brazil. And you may be asking yourself, well, why Orlando? Does Reuters have a bureau in Orlando? The answer to that is no, Reuters doesn't have a bureau in Orlando, but um, I am working from home. I'm, I'm in my home office. And I think you know this may not have been possible or likely even pre-pandemic, but obviously the pandemic has made us all rethink how we work, where we work, how we operate. And um, in that sense, I was fortunate to be able to be allowed to work from home. And that is what I'm doing. So speaking to you from the Sunshine States. <laughs> and have you published any columns yet? Sorry, I realized I could have looked that up. but uh... Yes, I've been uh, in this new role for a few weeks and I've done about, I think, probably two columns a week for the past two or three weeks. I have published columns on US bond market, the US dollar, Wall Street inequality in the US and how the Fed is tackling that. And these uh, columns have gone out on the Reuters Newswire and the Reuters website. And I presume, I haven't checked, but I presume they've been picked up by other media who take an interest in such things. So yes, I am operational now from the Orlando office. So we'll get back to your current job later on in the interview, but a big point of the podcast is to give people examples of how journalists got to where they are today, and I start way, way back at the beginning. If you could tell us a little bit about where you were born, what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seeds of interest in journalism or markets or anything that you do now early on in your life. Sure. Well, as you may be able to tell from my accent, I'm from Scotland. I was born in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland, some time ago now. And growing up, I grew up in a capital city, a small one, albeit. And I've always had, from very early age, as early as I can remember, a lifelong passion and interest for news and current affairs. I was never one of those who grew up always wanting to be a journalist or a writer. In fact, I'll be honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was younger, and mm -hmm. you know, to some extent, I think um, it probably applies to all of us to a certain extent. Um, I still don't really quite know what I want to be when I grow up, <laughs> but um, certainly that passion and interest for news and current affairs has always been with me. And so yeah, I grew up in Edinburgh, went to school in Edinburgh, and I actually went to university in Edinburgh. So I went to Edinburgh University, but um, I did a degree... Well, I ended up doing my, my final degree was a joint honours degree in Spanish and Portuguese. Oh, OK. With a bit of politics thrown in there in first year and second year. But my ultimate degree was in, as I say, in languages. So an MA, a Master of Arts in Languages. And if I didn't have a real sort of inkling of what I wanted to do with my life, I certainly knew that I always wanted to travel. And I've always had, a well, from a very early age, about seven or eight, I think, a real passion and interest for Spain and all things Spanish. And so hence the, I did Spanish at school and hence the degree in Spanish. And so, um, yeah, that's what I suppose opened up the door to my journalistic, what end, has become my journalistic career was languages and Spanish. As I say, I did Portuguese as well. And from that, I came to Brazil about two or three months after graduating, I uh, managed to secure a one-year placement as an English teacher, an English language teacher in the Cultura Inglesa, which was a, was a private chain of English language schools across Brazil. And I managed to get a place 
in the school in Franca, which you may have heard of because you live and work in Brazil, but most people will not have heard of. It's a town in the state of Sao Paulo in Brazil. It's a town of about 250,000 people. And I got a place in the, in the English school there. And so that's what opened up the door to Brazil. And as we can discuss in a conversation, that's what opened up the door to journalism. Sure. And well, what was it that got you interested in Spain at first? <laughs> this may not uh, go down too well with many of your listeners, but it was actually bullfighting that first uh, got me hooked on Spain. Oh, wow. Uh, I know it's not the most popular of activities. The first time I went to Spain was with my dad in, I think, 1981. And I remember seeing a bullfight on TV in the bar next to our hotel. And I was just hooked. I don't know what it was. It may have been the colour, the spectacle, the danger, the goriness, whatever it was. Or, But it got me hooked on bullfighting, which is, a, which is an interest and a love of mine that's lasted to this day. Again, perhaps not the most popular of opinions, but certainly got me hooked on Spain. And from then, really, that was the gateway drug, if you like. Yeah, that's fascinating. I would have never guessed that. And I mean, it's very, very Ernest Hemingway of you, you know. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. And uh, obviously, I've read, I've read, uh, I think, probably most of Hemingway's work. And you don't have to be a fan of bullfighting or an aficionado of what we aficionados would call art. You don't have to be a fan of it at all to appreciate Hemingway's writing. And um, obviously, he was a journalist as well. And um, I got hooked on his writing and... You know, I think many journalists would give the right arm to be able to write anywhere close to his level of clarity. And I think we all strive, especially in the newswire world, where you're limited to maybe 60 or 80 characters in a headline and 300 characters in a full story. Who could approach his level of being able to tell a story in such a short space with so few words? I think uh, that's, that's the goal we all strive for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. At the beginning of The Sun Also Rises, not much is about his work, but he does go to the, I think he's working for a wire service. He goes to the office, he reads the local paper, he does a couple of what nowadays we would call pickups. And then he's like, okay, done for the day, goes out, goes to the bar, <laughs> goes to talk to people about bullfighting. And so yeah, same thing, a little bit cushier back then. But uh, yeah, I think so. Was it was it the AP that he was writing for? I think it was. Was it the Associated Press? I may be wrong in that, but I think it was the AP. Maybe in real life. I, I, I don't know if he names what it is in the book. In real life, yes. That's what I mean. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, interesting. So I feel like a lot of journalists have started out uh, as English teachers, a lot of foreign correspondent journalists, because, yeah, just a way to get there. And once you're on the ground, kind of more opportunities open up. So so how did you get into journalism from there and where did you end up working? Once I did my year in Franca, I was under no illusions. I wasn't going to stay in Franca. It was a small town in the interior of Sao Paulo. I wasn't going to stay there. I wasn't going to if I could help it, I wasn't going to extend my <laughs> career as an English teacher because uh, I quickly realised I wasn't really cut out for it that much. It was through friends in Sao Paulo, English and American friends in Sao Paulo, who I got friendly with, and then I would uh, go to Sao Paulo itself quite often on weekends and stuff. And I can't even remember exactly how it, how it unfolded, but basically um, I had friends who worked as translators for a news service called Invest News, 
Now that was the newswire service for the Gazeta Mercantil, which back then was you know the Brazilian equivalent of the FT or the Wall Street Journal. It was the Brazil's national financial and business newspaper, mm-hmm. which actually it went bust a few years ago, quite a few years ago now. But back then, in the mid to late nineties, it was a big deal, and so friends of mine worked as translators for the financial business newswire service for the paper. They had a couple of big clients in the US who took the Brazilian news, you know, stock market stuff. I think they were quite big on commodities. So the price of soybeans and other commodities in Brazil, uh, this client or a couple of big clients in the US were keen for that news. And I got a, I, I got a job there. They got me a place on the team and I worked translating from Portuguese business stories and financial stories in Brazil into English and we would uh, send them off. It was real-time translation, real-time news and so they would send them off to the US and that's where I started in fact. So my entire journalism career has been in real-time news. And so how long did you work that job and did you then go straight to Dow Jones in Sao Paulo? can't remember exactly the circumstances, but I worked in that job for a year in Sao Paulo. Then I went back to Edinburgh for a year, worked in a shop uh, with a couple of friends. Again, <laughs> there's, a, there's a pattern here, there's a theme of not really knowing what I want to do. True. Uh, and so, but then I stayed in touch with my friends in Brazil and I can't, again, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but they called me back and I went back, back to Sao Paulo. And I was going to work there again on the translation service. And then a friend of mine, one of my friends who was in that team, he'd gone to Dow Jones. Steve Wisniewski, he's American, and he went to Dow Jones. Back then, AP and Dow Jones were very much a kind of joint venture. And so he was working in the AP Dow Jones office, running the Dow Jones side of that service. So basically running Brazilian financial and economic and commodity coverage for Dow Jones Newswire. A position came up. He asked me if I wanted to come and do the writing test, which I did. I did well enough to pass and well enough for them to ask me if I wanted a job, which I did. And it was for a position in, in Rio. It was the Rio Bureau of Dow Jones Newswire. It was a one-man team. I, it was going to be me. But again, it was uh, in the AP office, so I would be working with or alongside AP colleagues, covering you know politics and general news and sport and stuff. And AP TV, I think it was called AP TN back then, uh, but basically TV service and the photography service. So yeah, I was um, I did three weeks kind of training in the Sao Paulo office, and that was in late 1998, and. In that three weeks, there was huge volatility and uh, eruptions in world financial markets around about September, October of that year. And I remember my boss, Steve Wisniewski, running around the office and, you know, banging the phones and, you know, tearing his hair out because markets were going haywire. And I just thought, you know, is this, you know, what's the big deal? (laughs) Uh, Does this happen all the time? Uh, Why is everybody in such a tiz? And I quickly realised that, you know, this, this is how financial markets can go and this is how reporting them and covering them can be. So that was an eye-opener. That was September, October 1998. And anyone who's long in the tooth enough or has covered markets for a while will know that that was a very volatile time for world markets. And so, yeah, I cut my teeth there and they 
um, sent me to Rio, and that was me in Rio de Janeiro, covering business and financial news for Dow Jones, based out of Rio. And so you had to write a bit about everything, it sounds like. Um, I mean, how... It sounds like kind of being thrown in the deep end from translation. Very much so. As you say, I was thrown in the deep end, which, you know, it's the best training in a way. It's sink or swim. And you have to, you know, that's that's the choice that, that, that faces you. And I remember the first, one of my first assignments as a journalist in Rio was I'd just joined Dow Jones. I'd just been sent to Rio. Uh, so I was a complete novice, wet behind the ears, no experience. And that was the time that the Brazilian currency, the real, was going to collapse. It was going to devalue. And Brazil was front and centre of world markets for a period. Certainly in Brazil, it was you know the markets and the currency and the IMF and the bailout and uh, the crisis, the Brazil crisis, was the story. And I was covering it as a complete novice journalist. And one of my first assignments was... The finance minister, Pedro Milan, he was in Rio speaking to the international press. Um, it turned out it was to all press, so all Brazilian press and international press in Rio. And it was being carried on TV, on live TV by Brazilian press and perhaps, you know, international financial news, perhaps CNN, I don't know. But we all got to ask him a question. But uh, we had to go up, up to a podium in front of all the journalists, the TV cameras, and in front of the minister himself, and ask her a question. And I was absolutely... <laughs> I can't tell you how nervous I was. Uh, <laughs> and I thought I would never be able to do it. And the people that went up before me, they were asking, you know, some really sort of detailed, focused questions on, you know, interest rate markets or the implications of this on that. And again, I was a novice, complete novice on, on the beat, and I'd never been in this environment in my life. And uh, so, yeah, to go up, it was nerve-wracking, but I did it and I asked a pretty decent question. Can't remember what it was exactly, but it was a decent question and he answered it, you know, and he gave it some thought. And so it, all that to say that, you know, you know, conquer your fears and do it and the relief that you get afterwards and the confidence that that kind of, you know, grasping the nettle or taking a step into the unknown the confidence that, that gives you to go on to the next step and the next stage and the next story or the next this or the next challenge is is uh, huge. Um, so it was it was a good education. It was a good way to learn. And yeah, I was covering a bit of everything, covering companies, Petrobras, the Brazilian state oil company based in Rio, covering markets as well. Uh, interest rates were jacked up to 45%. The currency was collapsing. The IMF came in with a multi-billion dollar bailout. You know, it was Brazil at that time. The Brazilian markets and economy was front page news around the world. And I was covering it on my own. Not on my own. I had colleagues in Sao Paulo. But, you know, a lot of the stuff. Uh, the IMF met Brazilian central bank people and finance ministry people in Rio, I remember, you know, sitting outside the finance ministry or inside the finance ministry for about 12 hours, waiting on somebody coming out with news to say, you know, no update yet on these IMF talks. So it was it was an education, it was an eye-opener, and um, it was hard work, but it was exciting. And so, yeah, I cut my teeth in financial journalism on one of the big stories of that year and probably of the decade. Wow, okay. How, how, so how long were you in Rio for, and uh, what happens after that? Well, it was only a short time again. It was only only for a year. I'd planned to stay in Rio for, for a bit longer than a year, but a job came up 
in London with Dow Jones and I took it for various reasons. And so I transferred to London covering commodities in London. You know, don't forget this was back in the late 90s and I think news organisations, news services, uh, there was a bit more to go around in terms of expenses and for travel and for relocation than there are today. And so I covered commodities out of the London office for a year and then I moved to the foreign exchange desk in London to cover FX. That was a big move for me because I had always been interested in sort of macroeconomics. Well, since I started my career in journalism a couple of years before, I had a real interest in you know fiscal policy, monetary policy, the politics of markets and economics and how markets work and you know the, the huge cross-border flows, all that kind of stuff. And then I had a chance to cover foreign exchange out of London, which is the foreign exchange capital of the world. Back then it was only about two or three trillion a day, but now about five, five and a half, maybe six trillion dollars a day is traded in London of foreign currencies. It's the capital of the world in effect. And so Dow Jones gave me the opportunity to write on FX from their London newsroom. So I did that for a year or a year or two. And then my Spanish passion came back to bite me and I got a move to Madrid with Dow Jones covering Spanish economics and business and the central bank. So I did that for a year, had a fantastic time in Madrid. And then, this is another short stint, it's only for a year. And then Dow Jones gave me the opportunity to write on FX again, back to foreign exchange, from their New York office, which I jumped at because, uh, you know, who doesn't want to live and work in New York, at, at least for a while? And I'd never been to New York. And so I jumped at that chance. And I was in New York, and that's where I joined that's where I joined Reuters in the mid 2000s, in 2004. But yeah, that's uh, quite the pace of, of uh, turnover uh, everywhere just for a year, but I guess. There was, a, there was a lot in that period of that initial, you know, at the start of my career, there was, there was a lot of plane journeys, country hopping, and a lot of relocation. Yeah, one year here, one year there, one year on that desk, and another year in that country. But that kind of slows down. <laughs> And just give us a sense of, since in New York you, you spent a little bit more time, we, I mean, we could talk about any of these jobs in depth, but, you know, what, what, are, what are these jobs like? You know, people can hear Forex and they think, oh, you're just, you know, writing daily market reports about, you know, the currency went up or down, like whatever, mm-hmm. this fraction of a percent. But uh, I imagine there was more to it than that. I mean, were you getting out, meeting with Forex traders? What was that kind of culture-like, yep. and what, what was it like reporting, I guess? I mean, you were on Wall Street, basically, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, it's, I think you've you know, made a fair point that market reporting in general is often seen, you know, people, journalists, if you like, will often look down at market reporting because, as you say, many people see it as just, oh, markets went up today or markets went down today. And so what if the, the market goes up half a percent or the currency goes down 0.2%? You know, these are tiny numbers. Who cares? But as I said earlier, we're talking about huge, huge flows, flows of capital and investment that run into the trillions of dollars, trillions and trillions on a daily basis. And so, you know, 0.2% of, of a trillion is quite a lot. I can't do the maths right now, but uh, it's, it's a lot. And so these are, you know, these are hugely significant Volumes, volumes of transactions. And also, as we're finding out 
in Brazil now, for example, you know, the currency, if it goes down half a percent a day, okay, that's not a lot. If it goes down half a percent a day for, for a week or for a month or for six months, you know, that has a huge impact on people's everyday lives. Huge impact on, uh, on inflation, on the economy, on growth, on people's lives and you know, how governments react to that, government policy, what this, how the central banks react to those moves, those capital flows, those exchange rates, those market moves, again, has a, a very real impact on everybody's everyday lives. And so, you know, that's how you can draw the line from writing about a market going up 2% one day or down half a percent the next. That's the line you draw to why it's important. And uh, so you switch to writers also doing Forex, is that right? Yes, uh, I got a job mid-2004. Uh, Reuters offered me a position uh, basically doing the same thing, covering foreign exchange and being part of the, of the New York team. Certainly then, Reuters you know, had, a, had a much larger team. It was a larger operation in New York, and the markets team was much bigger than Dow Jones. Fantastic team at Dow Jones, great colleagues, some of whom I'm still in touch with and friendly with to this day. Uh, it was a great team, but it was a fairly small team. And the Reuters, uh, I think uh, I was looking to just join a slightly bigger operation. So I moved to, to Reuters, working in Times Square, which was, uh, was, you know, was fascinating, was interesting. You know, again, being in midtown New York, might not be for everyone, but, but it was fun. And again, I met some great people. It was a fantastic team. And I was covering foreign exchange for Reuters for a couple of years until I moved back to London to head up the fixed income team and the FX team in London. That was in 2006. And so, well, yeah, wow, you were managing the team at that point. That was my first, my first um, foray, my first step into the world of management, yes. <laughs> came back to London and uh, managed a team of about, I can't remember, I think it was maybe about eight people, ten perhaps. Oh, wow. And Forex was like, it, Reuters was kind of, it was their bread and butter early on. Obviously, you know, now all the services are trying to be everything to everybody, but... You know, mm-hmm. it used to be that, uh, you know, whatever, Bloomberg started and they were more focused on bonds and then branched out. But uh, Forex, for whatever reason, Reuters has a history doing that, right? That's right. That's, uh, that's correct. Yeah, Reuters um, back then was the, you know, the FX was, as you say, the bread and butter. Uh, we had more share of FX, you know, the FX market in terms of client base. We, we definitely, Reuters definitely had a bigger share over um, its competitors, including Bloomberg. And yeah, uh, Dow Jones was maybe, I think Dow Jones was more focused on equities, so stock markets. And Bloomberg, as you say, was more, they had more of a focus and more of a lion's share of the client base in fixed income and bonds, interest rate stuff. And Reuters was FX, yeah. Um, But now, of course, as you say, everyone's everyone's trying to do everything. Right, right. So are you in this current job up until the, the financial crisis? Yes, well, that was 2006, and the financial crisis, as we all know, well, Lehman Brothers collapsed on September the 15th, 2008. Um, but of course, the build-up to the crisis you know, was coming long before that. And I remember um, in New York in you know, 2005, two, 2006, with Reuters, a lot of people were pointing to the US housing market, 
saying it was unsustainable. You know, the, the growth and acceleration in the US housing market was just building up and up and up, and it was going to end in tears. And also at that time, US, the trade deficit and the current account deficit was building up and up to, you know, huge levels. But well, back then, all-time highs in terms of deficit. So there was a lot of pressure, or people thought there was going to be a lot of downward pressure on the dollar. So they had these huge imbalances. That's a word that we use a lot in financial market coverage. Huge imbalances, uh, the US trade and current account side with the rest of the world and within the US itself in the housing market. And I remember people saying, oh, this is going to end in tears, it's not going to end well, how is it going to end? Nobody was really quite sure. But I don't think anybody quite, or very few people, saw the financial crisis coming about the way it did. Um, of course, it was the sub, it was the housing market that collapsed, and that's you know largely what triggered it. But underneath the hood, you know, it was the plumbing of the financial markets and the plumbing of the world economy, of through the, the world financial system. That's what came apart. There was problems there under the hood, and you know. Things like um, money markets and uh, leverage and uh, interbank markets and the stuff that nobody really wrote about day to day because you just assumed that the world financial system worked and if the plumbing's going well, the, the taps are flowing, everything's fine. Yeah, I suppose you can use the analogy of a house. You assume the plumbing's fine because the water's running up the tap, everything's fine, you can have your shower. But once the plumbing doesn't work, you know, then, you've got, then you've got a problem. And that's what happened in you know 2008. It came to head in 2008. And so, yeah, I was in London for that. I was heading up, the, as I said, the FX bonds team. And if 1998 was a sink or swim education in news coverage or covering market crises in Brazil, then certainly 2008 was of a whole other magnitude. Yeah, so give us some sense of, like, what does that mean for... Uh, someone like you or somebody on your team? I mean, markets are going haywire, so you have to work like crazy. I mean, or, yeah, I mean, is I imagine it's an intense experience. Do people need to be on the phone all the time figuring out, like, yes. why, what's going okay. on? How, how did it go? Uh, well, I think, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. It was intense. It was, you know, very, very intense. This was on a whole other level. This was not just front page news, it was, you know, it was the only story for, <laughs> for the world uh, for many, many months. And you, know, to, you can argue to a certain extent, we're still feeling the ramifications of that. Um, you know, bluntly put, the, the world economy and the world financial system was minutes or hours, if not minutes away from complete collapse, from complete hemorrhage. And, you know, you wouldn't have been able to get money from the ATMs. It was that serious, that perilous. Uh, once the US investment bank, Lehman Brothers, collapsed, the global central banks had to come in and you know, save the day with all this. What we now know as QE and quantitative easing and uh, zero interest rates and the governments came in and spent trillions to prop up the economy. All that happened first in 2008 and markets were going haywire, as you said. Screens were red. There was huge volatility. The moves in Stock prices and currencies and bonds were, you know, literally off the charts. Record, you know, record moves. And as you also alluded to there, we were just, not only were we trying to figure out what was going on, the people we were speaking to were trying to figure out what was going on. So the quote-unquote experts, they had really no real, you know, in the heat of the moment, they had no real clue 
either what was going on or how it was going to, to end or what could be done or where it was going to end. Uh, certainly in those days of September, October, November 2008 and into early 2009, it was, it was chaos. I mean, it was, it was intense, it was chaotic, it was volatile, it was long days, it was extremely draining, it was hard work, it felt never-ending and at times, you know, I just wanted to tear my hair out, <laughs> Uh, burst into tears. Uh, it was it was tough. It was really really tough. Uh, I, I mean, I, I won't dress it up. And that went on for weeks, possibly months. And it, obviously, at certain times, certain days, it was really intense. And it was just non-stop, absolutely non-stop, on the phones, to sources, to traders, to analysts, to economists, just trying to figure out what was going on and, and where it was going to stop, how it was going to stop, how it was going to end, what was next. And trying to you know trying to make sense of it like any story like we do in any role as a reporter or journalist you, know, you try and make sense of the story and you try and tell it to to your audience in a way that they will understand and it makes sense that was difficult because you know <laughs> nobody really nobody really had a firm grasp on what was going on uh, and so it was difficult but it was so it was hugely challenging draining. But it was fun, and uh, you knew that you were in the, the eye of the hurricane, if you like, and you knew that what you were doing was being read. You knew that all eyes were on you, all eyes were on your output, because everybody wanted to know what was going on here, and what you were writing uh, was being read. And so it was hugely satisfying as well, but it was chaos for, for a period of time. It was, it was unhinged chaos, I suppose. But covering that... I knew that it was the story and I knew that I was, in, I was very lucky in a way to be in that position as a markets journalist, as a markets reporter. You know, this was the story of my lifetime, of the decade, in fact, of, of all time for world markets. Yeah, wow. And yeah, I mean, I hope most, most of the world hopes <laughs> that will be the biggest financial story in our lifetimes because, yeah, it's certainly... We don't want anything worse than that to happen. No, we don't. We don't. And in fact, you know, the COVID-triggered recession, you know, in some ways was worse than 2008. Certainly global GDP, global output, you know, fell more. But it was quicker and faster and it was over quicker and faster. And it may not feel like, like it everywhere and for everyone, but things are getting back to normal more quickly than they did 13 years ago partly because of the nature of the recession, of, of the fall, was very quick and sudden, so the bounce back has been reasonably quick and sudden, you know, with vaccinations, etc. And policymakers, they got bitten hugely by 2008, and so they're in a better position now to know how to deal with a crisis. And bluntly put, the way you deal with a financial crisis like 2008 or a global recession like 2008 or 2020, the way you deal with it is you throw everything you've got everything at it. You don't scrimp and save, you throw trillions of dollars or yen or euros or pounds, whatever it is. You do all you can to make sure the damage is, is swift and limited and things get back to normal as quickly as possible. Then you can start to think about how do you get back to quote-unquote normal. So policymakers did that in 2020 and that's why it wasn't as bad on the face of it or for most people, as certainly the the recession of 2008, 2009, which was pretty savage. Right, yeah. 
Well, what do you do next? Um, what do I mean? That takes us up to 2008, 2009. And of course, after that, we had the Eurozone crisis. You know, we had the, the world financial crisis in kind of 2008, 2009, or from 2007 really to 2009. But then we had the Eurozone debt crisis, which was a follow-on from 2008. And that was kind of 2010, 2011, 2012. So that became the focus for me at that point, and I was still in the markets team covering FX and bonds. So it was um, Eurozone borrowing costs, Eurozone interest rates, the Euro. You know, there was huge pressure on the Euro. People thought the Euro might have to, you know, fold or collapse or have to be rejigged or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the, the, the tension and the, and the pressure shifted to the Eurozone in 2010. And a few governments had to have bailouts so that was the story then. One thing about you that people might not realize is you have by far the most Twitter followers that anybody had in Brazil and probably will have in the future and did have in the past. You have more than, you know, 100,000 Twitter followers. At what point did that come about? What what drove that? And, and we talk about finance as if it's arcane. You have the largest following of any of us. When did that happen and what's that all about? Ah, that's a good question. Um, when did it happen? Well, I, I joined Twitter in, I'm just looking now actually, uh, April 2011. So I joined ju- just over 10 years ago and if you can think back to early 2011, Twitter was probably in its infancy, even though it may have been around for a few years. Certainly in the financial media world, it was in its infancy and it was just taking off. So I think I kind of joined at the time where it was, you know, as I say, taking off and, you know, so everybody was doing it, if you like. Everybody, everybody was joining and it was all new to us. And I remember having, not joining until then, because I had a, you know, quite a large degree of scepticism about Twitter. I thought, well, why the hell do I need this? What good will it serve? And, you know, why do I have to be in it? And you know, whatever. I think, you know, many people might have had the same sorts of thoughts. But it quickly became a very handy tool and the go-to place to find out what your peers are saying, find out what people in the, your sources are saying, what what the you know the, the zeitgeist of the market is, what's going on just in general, you know, as a news service. Previously I would have as as I still do, I have have the Reuters newswire or various wires up on my screen and I you know I'm glued to that all day. But I quickly became had one eye glued to the Reuters screen and then another eye glued to Twitter just to see what was going on out there that we may have missed and as I say to find out what my peers and my sources and the market in general was, uh, were talking about and the timing of that as I say was probably important as to help explain why I've got so many followers on Twitter I think it was luck to a large extent and I was covering at that time the Eurozone crisis and that was when the Eurozone crisis was you know was the story of the day Twitter was the place to go for that news flow and for information and rumours, speculation, what, what have you. And so I started, I was posting a lot then and because I was one of, maybe an early starter, I got early starter advantage, I would get retweeted by, you know, other people in the market, maybe um, maybe the Twitterati who, for whatever reason, had gained some prominence or some following. I think it was just luck. I got retweeted once by... The CME, which is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, 
Now, that might not mean anything to you or most people <laughs> listening to this, but they, uh, mm-hmm. that's the, the, the market in Chicago for trading, you know, a lot of stocks, commodities and bonds. And, and, you know, again, it's a huge marketplace for all that trading, all that financial market trading. And they retweeted me once. I remember I was, I was in Brussels, actually, covering an EU summit. And they retweeted one of my tweets. And I think I got about 350 new followers. Or, no, sorry, 350 retweets of that tweet or new followers. I can't remember which. That very day, just on the back of that one, one tweet. Or one retweet, rather. And I thought, wow, this is this is weird. This is madness. You know, I did, I, what what on earth is happening here? And then I got another retweet, two or three retweets by again people who had large followings, and that was that really. And it kind of took off. It kind of snowballed from there. And yeah, and maybe if if I'm giving myself some credit, perhaps my, all my years of writing. Headlines and snap, well, we call them at Reuters snaps, market headlines, the the red capitalised headlines that go around the world on the Reuters terminal. Several, several years of doing that, maybe kind of honed my skills in writing what was then 120 character tweets. I think then we're now 240, aren't we? Or 280 on Twitter, but then it was 120. And so I would, you know, maybe my tweets were succinct or... I've, I've, I've no idea, but maybe um, my headline writing skills helped on that front too. But that, that's a long way of saying I'm not quite sure, and I think luck and timing and being retweeted by you know some influential Twitterers at the time probably did more than anything else. Yeah, and maybe uh, Twitter obviously is you know designed to be fast and in the financial world. Things are all about speed. So if you're not looking at the wire, if you're not subscribed to the Reuters wire, probably the fastest way to get information is on Twitter and you're on the front lines getting that information. So it's a conduit. Now, that's 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 a valid point. And that, that's probably a, a, another huge factor as well, actually. Yeah, um, speed and just the nature of my beat, of my role or my roles as you know, you know covering markets and my experience in covering markets for a newswire and as you say that as we've kept on saying throughout this discussion is speed is paramount obviously accuracy is more paramount but we are ma- we are measured on the newswire um, in seconds you know nanoseconds and so if you can get something out on twitter pretty quick or a, an idea or a thought whatever it is you know it's that that goes a long way too I think I think now I think, I think Twitter now is much more saturated. Obviously, it's a much more mature product and market. And actually, just just, just to finish the point on on the following, uh, I think it's a combination of uh, the mature market, the mature audience, the nature of Twitter, and the fact that I post less and whatever else. You know, but my following hasn't changed. In fact, it's gone down in the last I'd say five years. It's been stagnant. It's been steady. It hasn't moved for about five or six years. And in fact, it's gone down, drifted lower. Maybe that's bots being, um, you know, siphoned off here, there, here or there, but um, it hasn't moved. Certainly it hasn't moved, moved up, upwards for several years. I think it's hard now. I think it's hard, harder to gain new followers now than it was 10 years ago. Sure, yeah, more saturated for sure. I mean, but 
who knows, next crisis comes along, maybe. Well, (laughs) who knows? So where do things go from there? In that time, I think it was around mid-2010, I moved to the TV side of Reuters operations. Reuters had just started or just launched, or was in the process of launching what was called Insider, Reuters Insider. And that was a kind of online, sort of web-based TV operation covering business and financial news. So quite a few of us were lured over to the bright lights of TV. It was called, as I say, Reuters Insider, and I was hired as kind of managing or guiding the the FX and bonds coverage, Eurozones of financial market coverage of Reuters Insider. So I did that for, I think, about three years, three and a half years. And that was fascinating because it was, you know, it was TV. I mean, it was a, a kind of, not what you or I or most people would think of as TV. There wasn't a 24-hour channel. You know, you couldn't just go to your TV and switch on and you'd have Reuters Insider. It was, you know, for Reuters clients and subscription-based online TV. And some of it was live, some of it was recorded, but we'd um, produce content for more of a financial audience on global markets. And I was part of that. Again, hugely interesting, inciting, exciting and fascinating because I hadn't done, I'd done a couple of TV hits and a couple of radio hits, you know, commentating on markets or giving my re- reporting on markets, but I'd never done anything like this before. So that was, that, that was kind of a new chapter. So you were on camera? Was it that you were doing? Not initially, not initially. No, I was um, sort of, certainly I was mostly behind camera for the first year or so. But then I moved to doing on-camera stuff, presenting and hosting some shows on markets, mainly foreign exchange and fixed income and bonds and interest rates, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I was doing that on-camera and behind-camera for for the second half of that stint on TV, about 2011 to 2013. Wow, yeah, I had no idea you did TV at all. Um, I mean, did it appeal to you? Did you, at the end, want to go back to writing? Did you think you might become a TV journalist? No, it's difficult to say. Uh, I was certainly interested and excited by it. I was certainly, it did appeal, TV appealed. But I won't lie to you, it was very daunting, especially doing the live stuff. It was daunting and it was a, it was a challenge. And I don't know if you've done any TV work before, um, but it can be, well, it is, it's, it's a challenge, you know, getting in front of a camera live and uh, not making a fool of yourself or trying not to make a fool of yourself, it's a challenge. Again, going back to the Pedro Milan anecdote and just in general, doing live TV or doing any TV is, is daunting and um, it takes a special kind of, uh, I wouldn't say a special kind of reporter, but it does take a kind of, you know, you got to have a certain either confidence or bravery or gutsiness or whatever you call it or you know some people are obviously very good at it and very talented and skilled but even I'm sure even they would say there's you know there there are nerves so a couple of times trying to record stuff for tv when I was um, doing Reuters Insider tv one in particular jumps out was in Madrid covering the the Spanish debt crisis I think it was probably 2011, maybe, or 2012. And I was you know, trying to get Vox Pops, you know, the, the view from the, the Spaniard on the street, 
on how they viewed Angela Merkel and Germany and the pressure that Germany was putting on Spain, you know, was this fair and what did the average Spaniard think of Germany and Angela Merkel? And uh, I was in Puerto del Sol, which is one of the main, one of the central squares in Madrid. And I had, a, you know, I was going to do my piece to camera. It wasn't live, fortunately, because it was it was in <laughs> November that year, and it was, I was it was quite late in the day. I was freezing cold, and I just could not. I could barely speak, barely speak. And so we're trying to record this piece to camera. It was probably only going to be about sixty seconds, which doesn't sound long, but <laughs> believe me, it was a lot. Sometimes when you do these pieces to camera, sixty seconds is a long time to talk. You know, uninterrupted, and especially uh, with no auto cue, nothing in front of me, just my chattering teeth and being cold in a dark Madrid square. I can't remember how many takes it took. It was several. It was probably about eighteen or something. It was it was torture. Luckily, none of none of the takes outtakes went on camera, but that was that that was awful, awful. And I think I'm um, doing other stuff, uh, doing recorded pieces to camera. For Reuters Insider, um, doing market coverage with a green screen behind me with charts and trying to, you know, and point to charts and draw lines on the screen and all that sort of stuff. Well, again, not having no auto cue and some some of those recordings didn't didn't go too well, to put it to put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I know from uh, back Reuters TV when they would have us do those stand-ups, you know. Uh, trying to do it like whatever out in the Amazon and I'm just sweating in like you know whatever 95 100 degree heat and trying to like you know there's no auto cue trying to remember something I wrote five minutes earlier and like you know having to record over and over and the TV guys are like also sweating bullets and like would this guy just like get it right so like (laughs) you know even doing five takes you can just feel their like seething impatience with the whole endeavor uh yeah it can uh, be very testing and and, you know and tv work in general is um you know it it kind of goes without saying but what you see on the screen that two minutes you see like a news package or a news clip or or a two-minute interview or a five-minute interview with some what what you see on the screen, the amount of work and preparation and practice and the moving parts that have to be put into place behind the scenes and behind the camera and beforehand is you know it's it's staggering. I mean you would not believe. And so that you know slight tangent, but my three years on Reuters TV, either in front of or behind the camera, was a huge insight into news coverage and how that side of journalism works. There's a lot. It's, it's hard work. Hard, hard work. Yeah, yeah. When my time was up, I do remember wanting to stay in TV, but the insider operation kind of morphed and changed and it kind of scaled down by late, mid to late 2013. And so uh, I don't think... I, I seem to remember there wasn't going to be a place for me, I don't think. And so I was looking to get back onto text. And luckily, a role came up kind of back on the markets desk with a, a broader remit. I think it was a chief markets correspondent role covering the same kind of stuff, global markets, uh, but back on the markets desk and back into writing. So I took that. But yeah, I, I certainly loved TV. I enjoyed it. And it was a fascinating period. No regrets whatsoever. And I've done, you know, subsequently, I've done some TV work, or whereas not being the presenter or the anchor or the host, but being, you know, 
asked questions and it certainly helped helped in that right and so you go back to the markets desk you're the chief markets correspondent and how do you get into writing uh columns that's kind of a, a progression from from the chief markets correspondent role the, the the chief role it was kind of good for me in a way because i wasn't on the day-to-day market coverage and so i think i think like Perhaps any any newswire beat, you know, as as you know yourself, newswires are intense. The, the the time pressures are intense. You know, we are measured in increasingly by nanoseconds now, milliseconds. If you're at a magazine, your your deadline might be two weeks or a week or a month. Very different than newswires, and so I think there is a. I think most people or many people would have you know reach a point where there may be a sense of burnout or fatigue or whatever it is. And certainly in the markets desk, I think that pressure and that intensity is magnified even more. So this chief markets correspondent role was very interesting to me and appealing to me because I could write broader pieces, as I say, think pieces, more analytical pieces, without that day-to-day intensity or intense pressure. And then in 2013, 2014, you may not remember, but what blew up, it turned out to be what we, we called the global foreign exchange scandal. It was the, the, the global FX scandal. It was um, basically big banks and brokers and foreign exchange traders in London and elsewhere around the world. A scandal emerged whereby some traders had been exchanging information, flow information and you know market information with each other in an online chat room or various online chat rooms. And this was revealed, this was exposed, and it became a scandal which some banks, traders, you know, were fired. There was huge investigations in the US, the UK and elsewhere into these chat rooms and did it amount to collusion and market fixing and rigging markets. That followed the LIBOR scandal along similar lines where interest rate traders were alleged to have shared information and fixed the interbank interest rate market. Again, I may remind your audience that these markets might sound archaic or arcane and so what, but trillions and trillions of dollars a day were going through these markets. And so when interest rates or levels are fixed or agreed or trades are carried out at certain prices, they have very real impact on huge, huge amounts of money. I was kind of siphoned off the markets correspondent role to solely cover that unfolding FX scandal in 2013-14. I can't remember how long it lasted. It was a couple of years, about 18 months or so into 2015. So I was covering that and that was was another way of reporting. It was more investigative reporting. I was solely on that story for, as I say, about 18 months and that was fascinating. Um, it, was a whole, uh, it was a whole kind of reporting that I hadn't really done before. As you can tell, my background is markets coverage to, to varying degrees or in various guises. But this was more, you know, investigating wrongdoing or alleged wrongdoing and having to talk to lawyers and banks and regulators and policymakers. And that was fascinating. Yeah, that sounds like quite a difference. And then, uh, so how long do you do that sort of thing before 
Um, did you only become a columnist fairly recently? I guess I'm not sure of the timeline from here on. Once banks had settled, uh, there was a multi-billion dollar settlement between you know most of the big banks in the world, JP Morgan, City, UBS, all those guys, Deutsche, etc. You know, once there'd been a, several banks had agreed a multi-billion dollar settlement with various regulators in several countries, this kind of brought the curtain down on that scandal and that investigation. And so I went, you know, I continued in my job as chief markets correspondent, but I went back to more as it was originally intended, you know, writing the broader and analytical pieces on world markets. And I did that for a couple of years until I think I started doing commentary market columns in 2017, perhaps. Reuters has the nature of financial journalism all journalism, but especially financial journalism and coverage has changed hugely with, with the internet, with Twitter, with online speed of flow of news, and you know, the whole trading world has changed along the same lines. And so the lines between commentary, analysis, hard news, reporting, they've been changing as well over, over the years. And Reuters and some news organisations like Bloomberg, they have, or did have, and still have, sort of columnists, market commentators. We have, for several years, had commodities columnists on the commodities side, you know, covering oil and metals and soft commodities, etc. They've had a team of commodities columnists. I wouldn't call them analysts. I'd say more columnists. For several years, and so we on the sort of financial market side, on the stocks, bonds, and currency side, kind of started to, to open our doors to that kind of coverage. And in 2017, the guys on the markets, you know, the, the managers in the markets team, decided they would like to experiment with financial markets columnists to complement the coverage, as I say, on the commodities side. Kind of, I was in pole position in a way. I was in the prime spot, being chief markets correspondent, kind of writing those kind of pieces anyway, but more from a from a news reporting standpoint. They just wanted me to, to kind of do the same job, but from a columnist position. So slightly giving myself more of a voice. It's more my voice in the story and in the piece, but not. It's not an opinion piece as such. It was more commentary backed with stats and facts and expert comment. And so that's how that role opened up. And with, with that, with that um, flexibility and freedom, uh, it's fantastic, you know, and I enjoy it. And, uh, but it brings a different set of, set of pressures, you know. Um, I'm not under pressure of, of you know, day-to-day market coverage, which is intense in itself, but there's a different kind of pressure. You know, you've, you've got to think up the ideas, spot stuff that no one else has spotted. And as you mentioned earlier, everybody's trying to do everything now. So spotting something unique or a unique angle or a different slant on something or highlighting something that no one's seen or no one's thought of is challenging. And so, yeah, I guess let's talk about the last couple of years. We met in Brazil where I was working in the Brasilia Bureau and you came here in, I forget, 2018, 2019. January 2019, yeah. And so we worked together here briefly, but, uh, you know, you've kind of gone from being a columnist to working here in Brazil to going back to being a columnist 
I guess any highlights of that? Anything you want to say about that? Oh, it was fascinating. It was so this opportunity came up to cover Brazilian economy, based in Brasilia, a city that I'd never been to, never been to Brasilia in my in my life, uh, and I thought one last adventure, one last you know foreign posting, if you like, and so I took it, and I think like everybody, the last. 18 months has been dominated, our lives and work lives and personal lives and everything has been dominated by the pandemic. Certainly, I didn't expect the pandemic, didn't foresee that. And so that dominated the last 18 months of my stay in Brazil and news coverage was radically altered because, as you know, Brazil is a, a city where you, know, you would go to news events, you'd go to press conferences, you'd, you'd meet sources for lunch. For drinks and uh, the Brazilians being what they are, you know, they were friendly, open, gregarious and, you know, that source meeting and building side of the job was kind of curtailed pretty much uh, by the pandemic and that was the last 18 months or so. But the story in Brazil uh, is as ever, as it was back then when I first lived and worked in Brazil. Interesting. Uh, I certainly I got my Portuguese back up a bit, <laughs> not as much as I would like because of the again mm-hmm. because of the pandemic. But uh, no, I, I had a fantastic time in Brazil, and it was great to be back in Brazil. And Brasilia is a you know, it's a weird and wonderful place, but I certainly enjoyed the city as well. So the next section uh, we can kind of play by ear. We'll talk about some stories. That's really only two questions. Did I mean, if you were going to talk about the financial crisis, have you already said your piece about that, or do you think you have more to say about that? Probably said all I had to say. Sure, sure. Then usually I like to start with more of the the downer question. If there's ever a a story that got away, a story that you wanted to do, but for whatever reason you couldn't, you couldn't prove it, you couldn't pull it off, you never found the time. Um, so let's start there. Does anything come to mind? There was one story when I was covering the foreign exchange scandal in 2014, 13-14, that as we discussed, it was much more that st- covering that story over a long period of time, that investigation was, it was more investigative journalism. And I had one story that I just couldn't back up or I thought it was backed up enough by sources, but uh, my editors and even the legal people at Reuters. Most of the scoops, exclusives and breaking news stories in that investigation were always read by the legal team because it was a very highly sensitive subject, legal cases, left, right and centre. This particular story was on, without going into the weeds of it too much, it was about um, how some FX traders in London had put some of their trades through brokerage firms without necessarily needing the brokers themselves to match the buy and the sell order. That sounds a bit convoluted, but basically the brokers are used to match a buyer with a seller for any stock or security or currency. These traders were allegedly, or apparently, I thought I had proved that they were traders at some of the big banks were agreeing deals with each other but then going to the brokers and putting these trades through the brokerage firm for no apparent reason, and it would cost them brokerage fees. So I was trying to figure out why they were doing this, because it didn't make any sense. 
And, you know, I did a story on that. I dug quite deep. I had good sourcing, I thought. I was pretty sure that this was going on. And if, you know, if the story got out that it was going on, then it would, you know, be another highly important twist or revelation in the ongoing saga and the ongoing broader investigation into these alleged fixing of exchange rates. But unfortunately, my editor, I think the legal people just say, said that it just didn't, they couldn't back it up for whatever reason and they weren't comfortable with it. So that got away. Uh, that didn't go out, that, that story. I think my memory is a bit foggy, but I think I remember seeing a few years ago, certainly several years after the whole thing died down, that I saw somewhere that somebody reporting that this had gone on at that time. And so I was, you know, kicking myself a bit, saying, oh, I knew this, I had this, like, years ago. And it would have, at that time, it would have been a, a big scoop. It would have been an important development in the, wide, in the wider investigation. But alas, it didn't go out. And everyone lived happily ever after, though, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, those legally sensitive stories, I mean, yeah, sometimes they get read and, you know, the lawyers are thinking... You know, this needs to be so nailed down it can yeah. hold up in court. Yeah, and, no, uh, no, I, I listen, I get it, I understand it. And uh, <laughs> they were just doing their job. Um, but obviously I thought I was just doing mine and I was, and to this day I'm, I'm convinced that, that I could have held it up. But they were convinced that they couldn't. And so there was, a, there was only going to be one outcome. Yeah, yeah. Some people probably made a lot of money off those brokerage fees. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, I'm sure they did, yeah. That's what we're trying to trying to highlight. But anyway, um, as I say, everybody lived happily ever after. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that does it for for stories. So next, we'll move on to the lightning round, which is more fast paced questions. So, do you feel ready for the lightning round? Yeah, go for it. So the first question is: What is a must read publication that you look at almost every day for what you cover? And so a uh, financial publication can't be Reuters. Mm-hmm. What is your first port of call? Well, I'm going to kind of cop out here on that one and um, not just cite one publication, but a media platform, and that is Twitter. Back in the day, I may have said, you know, maybe the FT or the Wall Street Journal or uh, whisper it, maybe um, try and find out what Bloomberg are saying. However, now I would you know, unequivocally say my go-to place to find out what's being said in financial media and in financial markets, I would say Twitter. Uh, the next question is, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? So journalistic in nature, but that isn't directly related to your job. I mean, I read, I mean, you know, I, I'm interested in football and music and stuff, you know, that's a bit more light-hearted and I read music news or articles or magazines or football stuff that's more enjoyment but it's not to do with my job as you know not to do with my job as such right yeah this is not intended to be about your job I don't know if there's a publication you look to for football or music or whatever news you know entertainment whatever Um, what about bullfighting you still keep up on that I do, I do, uh, very sort of vaguely. Uh, I follow a stream on Twitter called Toros, which means, just means bulls. Toro is the word, is the Spanish word for bull. Corrida de Toros is the Spanish. It means literally running of the bulls, but that's what the Spaniards call a bullfight. 
Correa de Toros. And I follow at Toros on Twitter. And I'm always looking out for their stuff. And they used to post clips, short clips on Twitter, maybe a minute or, I think, what's the maximum on Twitter? Two, two minutes, 20 seconds or something, or two minutes? They would post clips of uh, bullfights around Spain during the season. But for some reason, it might be my location or whatever, but I don't seem to get video anymore. I'm sure uh, many people are pulling out their tiny violins. <laughs> But uh, I can't see them anymore. So, but yes, I do keep up with Toros. Um, that seems like a good answer. That's something that certainly has nothing to do with your work. Let's see. What is the best a journalistic article piece? It can be whatever medium, text, TV, audio that you've consumed recently. So a journalistic piece. Actually, I had thought about this. And bizarrely, weirdly, and I don't know what it reflects, I don't think it reflects anything, but I had I just jotted down three things, and they're all CNN. Oh, huh. Which is weird because uh, I don't watch CNN regularly. However, the last three things that stuck out for me in terms of you know well crafted or well explained journalism that hit the spot or hit the mark were all CNN, and I'll just run through them very quickly. Daniel Dale. On Twitter, and Daniel Dale is the Washington or one of CNN's Washington correspondents, and you and your audience may know him as the guy who fact-checked every public utterance, every public word that Donald Trump made as president for well his entire presidency, well four years. Again, a very simple concept, but a huge undertaking, which I think um, drove the correspondent in question. I think it drove him mad or close to the edge of <laughs> madness. He said himself, he had three aims. One, to get readers and viewers the facts that they were not getting from the president. Two, to show other journalists when the president was lying so that they might you know, take that on board and get it into their own reporting. And three, to take a stand for truth, to declare that there was still such a thing as verifiable reality. And I think uh, any form of journalism or any journalist that tries to do that anything that achieves those goals, you know, is doing a good job, is doing everyone a service. And I think, I I thought his output was fantastic. Um, Fast forward to the US election. John King, I don't know if you or anybody watched John King, CNN, John King, um, I think he's now general or chief correspondent or something, or roving reporter. But he, you know, his graphics, his, you know, whiz-bang, bells and whistles graphics, on election night and just before and just after the election were fantastic and he, he you know just laid out in very clear terms why things were important why certain voting districts were important he revealed and reported and conveyed a sense of enthusiasm knowledge his ability with the graphics and his ability to tell the story clearly and simply not just once, but over and over again, without it becoming tired or becoming boring, or, be- or him becoming tired or boring, or the viewer becoming tired or bored. It was a remarkable feat of journalism and reporting. And again, all on live TV, where there's no room for error, and you've got hours, literally hours and days to fill. And uh, I thought his performance was fantastic. And just most recently, again, CNN's international correspondent in Afghanistan, I can't remember her name, was it Clarissa Ward, I think her name, 
her reporting from Afghanistan, Kabul, in the last few weeks has just been fantastic. There's no other way of saying it. Brave, focused, seemingly calm on the outside, but telling the story again clearly and truthfully and honestly and you know, putting herself in danger, all that. Her ability to, to do that work under the circumstances and pressures and to convey what was going on was remarkable. She's not alone. Others have done that in the past and others do do it. But just in the last few weeks, she sprung to mind. Those are all good. The next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? I thought about, about this and you know there were several names popped up, but all of them seem to be kind of either interviewers more than journalists. Yeah, sort of TV presenters or, you know, that, that kind of, from that side of journalism, which I don't, sure. always, don't always equate with raw or pure or uh, old school journalism. I picked the journalist Hugh McIlvanny. Now, he was a Scottish journalist. He died a couple of years ago. Uh, in, he was in his 80s. He was a sports journalist, uh, widely regarded, re- revered in his field. He was a journalist for almost 60 years. And his, you know, his areas of focus and his loves, his passions were boxing and football. And he wrote brilliantly. I think I chose him for, well, for a few reasons, but he was a, just a, a wonderful, fantastic writer. I mean, if he wasn't writing about football or boxing or Muhammad Ali, he could be writing about anything. And um, it was just fantastic. He was great. But his era also fascinates me. Not just his subjects and his, um, what he wrote about, but his, his era. He had access to these, to these people. He was writing the 60s, 70s and 80s when he could and did, and one could, become friends with the people you're writing about. You know, so he was close to Ali, for example, Muhammad Ali. He was very good friends with you know, three of the greatest football managers of all time, Jockstein, Matt Busby and Bill Shankly. He wrote about them, they were his subjects, but he, he had access to them. And I think that would have been fascinating to have access, you know, to count as friends, guys like these. And he had that. He had the, the fortune to be able to, to live that life. And, uh, yeah, and he, he did a documentary called The Football Men. It's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. It was about these three guys I just mentioned, Chuck Steen, Bill Shankly and Matt Busby, managers of um, Celtic, Liverpool and Manchester United. The documentary is about their background, where they came from, their, you know, their, their upbringing, their family, their friends. They were all from mining villages in the west of Scotland within a radius of about 20 miles or less, perhaps. You know, they came from very, you know, sort of impoverished, working-class, mining backgrounds from a tiny, tiny corner of the world, and yet all three became colossuses on the world football stage. You know, um, three of the greatest managers, club managers of all time in the history of football worldwide. And so he, his documentary focused on what made them as men, what made them as human beings, what made them as motivators and... Um, the great men that they became, less so on their achievements, which we all know, but that was a fascinating documentary, and he was fortunate in that he did it long enough ago to have access and interview their contemporaries, their family, their friends, and their colleagues, who were, of course, all dead by now. But uh, it's a documentary, if you're interested in football, anyone who's interested in football, it's a must-see, and um, his writing, and he wrote the documentary, and his writing in it, and his 
narration is just um, it's of the f- highest order, first class. Great. What's the name of the documentary again? The Football Men. The Football Men. Gotcha. By Hugh McIlvany. It's on YouTube. It's in, it's in several parts in grainy 19, mid-90s, early 90s TV. So the quality is not the best, but uh, spellbinding stuff. Next is, what is the coolest, weirdest, strangest, scariest, whatever, most unbelievable situation you've been in uh, in your job? My job has taken me to various places over the years and interesting places, met some interesting people. And before the clamp down on travel costs, maybe started to bite, you know, back in the day, um, you know, I got quite a few trips to various events whether it be conferences or covering policymakers or government officials or central bankers, economy ministers, etc. And you, know, you get to interview and to question and rub shoulders with you know, some of the great and the good. I don't want this to... Um, there's certainly no sort of name-dropping stuff, but uh, you know, other journalists have had um, similar experiences and can probably you know, drop sev- several more names than, than I can. But, uh, you know... Some places, being in the same room as, or asking Bill Clinton a question, for example, uh, being in the same room as Nelson Mandela, um, talking to George Soros or John McCain, Pep Guardiola, r- random ones like that. Being on the, the Sambadrome, the, how do you call it, the Sambodrome or the Sambadrome in Rio, covering carnival or during carnival, on the floor with the parades as they, you know, march by and talking with the dancers there and some of the Brazilian football team from 1982. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, who's not going to enjoy that kind of thing? So I've had this, had some of those experiences, met some interesting people. Um, the most charismatic person I've ever met or talked to or questioned, uh, by a mile, I would say, um, Hugo Chavez, the former leader of Venezuela. Oh, wow. Um, and in Rio, a couple of times, actually, back in the late 90s. And I would say the next most, second most charming is uh, John Bolton, the, the US <laughs> security chief. Now, you know, you can maybe ask yourself why that would be, but two ends of the two opposite extremes of the political spectrum, Hugo Chavez and John Bolton, and they were probably the most, you know, easygoing, charming, charismatic, friendly people I ever interviewed or spoke to. You might not think that by, you know, if I'd said, you know, think John Bolton's a nice guy <laughs> or Hugo Chavez. But yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, the last two questions now. So the next question is, what is your favorite book, film, TV or other media about journalists and why? It can be fiction, nonfiction, just something some tangentially related to, to journalists. Um, this is very tangential. It's fiction. Satire, although anyone who knows it will think that it's not fiction and it's very much not satire, sadly. I don't know if you know of the British sort of fictional documentary series, satirical series called The Thick of It, written by Scottish writer, TV guy, Armando Iannucci, who's done several things, you know, several fantastic comedy shows and characters over the years. Maybe your US audience will know and better for the creator of In The Loop, which was the spin-off of The, the Thick Of It. Okay, that's the one I've um, heard of. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it was the spin-off, but that film was a spin-off of The Thick Of It, which was based on 
the inner workings, inner sanctum of Downing Street, if you like, uh, the spin doctors and media advisors in the UK government in 10 Downing Street. The reason it's got a journalistic link, it was the main character, Malcolm Tucker, who is an expletive-laden profanity, you know, he's swearing heavily, head of communications for the government in the show. He was based on a guy called Alistair Campbell. Now, Alistair Campbell was a former journalist. He was a political journalist at the Daily Mirror, based in London. And he became Tony Blair's advisor in the mid-90s, press guy, chief press guy for Tony Blair. And when Blair was elected prime minister in 1997, Campbell was taken on, uh, taken in, he was very much Blair's confidant, right-hand man in many ways. He was taken on as um, government press secretary, uh, spokesman for uh, Tony Blair. Basically... For many, many years, throughout Blair's premiership. And so Malcolm Tucker, the central character in The Thick of It, is based on Alistair Campbell. And anyone who's not seen The Thick of It, I strongly urge you to do so. It is one of the best things you'll ever see. It is scarily funny, brilliantly written. Uh, some of the performances, the acting is fantastic. But Amando Iannucci is, you know, he's just wonderful. This is one of his best works. And the reason it's and maybe not quite fiction is because the more you see the thick of it and the more you see some of the workings of government, whether it be in London or in Washington since, and uh, some of the stuff that comes out about how decisions are made, why they're made, who makes them, and some of, you know, some of the, the light that's thrown on what you think are smooth operations, but they're actually farcical, chaotic messes behind the scenes. He nails it in the show, and uh, Malcolm Tucker is a fantastic... If he's based on him, he's a fantastic Alistair Campbell. And again, I would urge everybody to go and watch it. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that's one I've not we've not talked about on this show too, so it's good to have a new one. The last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? In my head, alternate reality. My dream as a kid as a child, was to play for Celtic. Um, I had that dream for many years, many, many years, way beyond (laughs) the age of being, (laughs) that anyone would say I was rational. Probably, I probably still do have that dream somewhere, if I could just pull on that jersey for one day and uh, walk onto Celtic Park and play for them, even just the once, would be my dream. Um, So yeah, that was, it was to play for Celtic. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Yeah, that's all That's all the questions then. So I just want to wrap up by saying uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jamie. Jake, it's been an absolute pleasure and thanks so much and uh, good luck with the podcast. Fantastic stuff. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jamie McGeever, a financial markets columnist for Reuters. I'll post links to some of the things Jamie talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. 
There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, September 26th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.